Hey guys, it's James Chester here. You're listening to the Gather Round the Lamp podcast by underagaslitlamp.com. Gather Round the Lamp, an Aston Villa podcast. Ollie Watkins just gets away from him, but El Ghazi's behind him. And more El Ghazi! 3 0! Emphatic! Triore with Watkins available. Triore just passes it into the corner. Big moment for him. It's young. Here's Douglas the Wee, strong on the ball, opens up for John McGinn, plays the pass towards Watkins, 1-0 Villa! Villa's a big club mate, so... Gather around fellow villains and welcome along to Gather Around the Lamp, brought to you by underagaslitlamp.com, in association with Manscaped. It's one of those episodes which none of us relish as we take a look at Villa's ghostly display at Arsenal on Friday night and try to wipe away those cobwebs before facing the terrifying prospect of West Ham at Villa Park on Halloween. I'm Andy, and here to help pick our way through the Villa corpses are two very haunted-looking chaps, Dan and Craig. Hey Andy, hi listener. Haunted's the right word. I'm scared stiff after the performance on Friday, and there's, there's plenty of corpses to pick through. There definitely is. There is a uh, there's an Aston Villa goal giveaway uh, club, and this one and and, and some of the uh, ghosts of Christmas past. There you go, mixing metaphors. There have uh, come to haunt us. It's uh, it's uh, it's it may not be the most joyful pod this week. I, th- I think that goals giveaway club is oversubscribed the last couple <laughs> of weeks. I think we're going to have to uh, try and kick out some members from last season to get them all in. We are. Um, but the first. Uh, Horrifying aspect of the evening. Um, on Friday, was was Dean Smith named named an unchanged team um, from the one that had capitulated so badly at Wolves uh, against Wolves. Sorry, with several underperformers keeping their place, along with um, the the five three two formation. Leon Bailey happily returned to the bench after after injury to inject some hope. However, as the match got underway, it became clear that it would be unlikely that it would be enough um if he if he got on thoughts on the on the team first of all yeah I, i'm going to actually defend dino here i wanted to see changes i think i said last week i wanted to see changes but the more i think about it the more i'm i'm not sure what he could do um you drop some players from that lineup and and suddenly I don't know. They're shot of confidence. They don't know what's going on. They 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 they're never going to come back into that team, and they know it was all their fault. And the other problem, I think, is I'm not sure he had the players to do anything different. I mean, Bailey clearly wasn't fit to start. Traore couldn't make the bench. God knows what's going on with Amar El Ghazi at the moment for him to not be picked. But I, I kind of think Dino was between a rock and a hard place. And and so whilst I didn't like the lineup, I can at least understand what he was doing with it. But that that doesn't excuse the dross that followed. Um, I wholeheartedly disagree with all of that. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I was, I, I think there is a lot he could have done. I, you know, I think that you know heads have to roll. I don't think that you can lose a two-goal lead um, and lose the game three-two with ten minutes to go and heads not roll. That Twanzebi was able to start after his abdication of duty dare I say last week against Wolves was was unbelievable uh, Courtney Horse apparently uh, rumours abound that he kicked off and I would have kicked off too um, had I been left out for Twanzebe so if he was going to keep the same formation at least 
Uh, Courtney Hawes needs to come in. Uh, Twanzebi again had another afternoon to forget. Uh, hooked at half time. Uh, I have. I think that players should be dropped on occasion. I advocated for the dropping of Matty Target after Watford. Dean Smith obliged. I also advocated for the dropping of Tyrone Mings after the Chelsea mistake. Uh, not because I hate Mings. We all know that this is kind of an unofficial Tyrone Mings fan club on this podcast. But just because I think when a, a when a when a player drops a bollock, there has to be accountability. And there were bollocks. This isn't the manscape bit yet, but there were, <laughs> I was going to say insert manscaped out here. There were there were bollocks <laughs> being dropped left and right uh, at Wolves in the last ten minutes, and heads heads should have rolled. The Ings Watkins experiment. I'm sure we'll talk about that later on. We we learned already that that wasn't working. So for them to both retain their places as well was disappointing. I think you've got a young lad in Cameron Archer who's kind of bright as a button in the form of his life. If you're going to play with two, maybe give him a chance. Uh, you've got young players like uh, Philogene Bidet to even make the bench. And where I'll go, uh, my beautiful baby boy Anwar Elgolzi, not everyone's cup of tea, but again scores goals. Still has I think already three or four goals this season and hasn't even featured for months. So the idea that he didn't have options, I, I, I fundamentally disagree with. And even if you do need to um, bring in some youth players or some kids or some players who may be not as good, I think it's just good for the squad. I think it tells the squad, listen, we, we, we're picking players here on form. So if you play well, you're going to stay in the team. And if you play badly, you're going to be dropped. But actually, Smith didn't do that. And, and, and I think that damaged team morale. And that's why I think we've seen some of the arguments and fractions existing in the squad, because people expect to be given the chance if, if, if other players are failing. And the Aston Villa's players currently, particularly after the Wolves game, and particularly after this Arsenal game, are failing. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is true. I mean, there's no point me uh, banging on too much about the formation. Everyone knows um, I don't like it for us. I don't. I don't like it as a as as a way of playing for us. I think it it doesn't suit the squad. It doesn't. It, it flies in the face of the recruitment over the summer, um, which which you know if you, to me suggests some kind of you know they're not talking to each other um, about the players that they they want to sign if they're signing certain players and then playing a system that doesn't suit them. But I think. I, th- I think this this is it. You know, when you when you when you have a, a such a such a dramatic capitulation um, as we did against Wolves, you just have to show you you're doing something. You know, if even if it's just for optics' sake, you know. But but turning up on Sky uh, six days later, um, away at Arsenal and picking the same team um, for one of our our worst results in a long long time, I just think is. Um, is is unforgivable, really. It's, it's, it just shows it shows a bit of a bit of stubbornness and pig-headedness. And um, I did kind of tweet something like that before. That um, you know, I, I don't like to to be too critical of the team selection until after the game when we know exactly what's happened. Because you you can slag the team selection off and win five nil, and then you look like a bit of a chump. But it was never going to happen. We were never going to win that game with that team and that formation. Um, or even possibly any formation, but um, I just I just thought it was uh, it was a and and I did hit see a couple of people sort of make the point that you know it's the same starting eleven that was 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 ahead for 70, 80 minutes against Wolves. Um, it was the you know not the same team that lost the game, if you know what I mean. But it, that's not how football works, you know. The team 
the team win and lose together, don't they? As 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 one, it doesn't. You can't if you've been taken off at, when you're two nil up. You can't differentiate and say, "Well, I didn't lose that game." It's it's still the team a team game, and and, and we lost. So um, I don't. I'm not on board with that either. And yeah, it was it was just really poor from Smith. Really poor indeed. Another thing I'll criticise Dean Smith for is the same thing I criticised him for in the Watford game. Why in the hell does it take until half time for you to change it? We knew in the Watford game, Matt Target was not at the races. We all like Matt Target. It's not a, a personal attack. It's just on that particular day, he'd had a broken foot. He didn't have a proper preseason. He was undercooked and Saar was rinsing him and we could all see it. And uh, Dean Smith wait until half time to make the change. Unfortunately, by then we're 2-0 down and the game's gone. Exact same thing against Arsenal. Everyone can see. Gary Neville can see. The fans can see. I know Smith and Shakespeare can see because they're a lot smarter than we are. We can all see this formation is not working and Arsenal are tearing us a new one. Why the hell do you have to wait until we're 2-0 down at half time? Change it after 15 minutes. Change it after 20 minutes. If Axel gets the hump because he gets subbed, tough. Go back to Man United. Have a, <laughs> have a lovely time over there. It is Dean Smith's responsibility to make changes when they need to be made. You don't need to wait for half time. You don't need to try and save face for the players. You say to Twanzebi, Twanzebi, mate, you're coming off 20 minutes. Uh, we're changing shape. Not your fault. We'll see you, you know, you know, you know, pat him on the back, give him a hug, give him a, a packet of pork scratchings, whatever you need to do to keep him happy. The big managers, Mourinho, Guardiola, uh, Klopp, they will make a change after 20 minutes. They will hook a player after 15 minutes if they need to. Uh, Dean Smith, uh, it was a bottle job for me. He, he did the same against Watford when he saw Matt, Cash, Matt, Matt Target, sorry, he needed to come off. He wouldn't do it. He could see the same thing we could all see against Arsenal. A change needed to happen in that game after 20 minutes. He didn't do it. He'd wait until half time, And by then, it was too little, too late. I think you've been a bit harsh on Dino there, and I, I know I'm a soft touch when where Dino's concerned, but I, I don't think big managers do make changes after 20 minutes. Mourinho gets gets dragged from pillar to post when he did it. Admittedly, he's, he's making an example about Luke Shaw most of the time, but I don't think big managers do. Big managers leave it to a half-time when you can actually affect a change, like trying to change the tactical lineup of a team when you've spent all week building one shape and then change it after 20 minutes with a shout from the touchline isn't the easiest thing to do. I think the more worrying thing from about the starting eleven is it, it falls into one or two camps. On the one side, Dino thinks that we played well against Wolves and there's no need to change anything. That, to me, is really worrying. On the flip side of it, he thinks that the psychological damage that would be done by dropping players and, and singling them out, because we'd be talking about the players that he dropped here, make no doubt about it, and, and wonder if they were to blame for the Wolves game. Does he think that by dropping them, he's sending the wrong message to a squad who, who, let's be honest, last year was great, great motivation, great mentality behind the scenes, but we've had a disruptive summer and lost some key players and brought some new players in. So so no one knows the pulse of that dressing room better than Dean Smith and his coaching crew. And, and that's the one thing where I can defend him is we don't know where the psychology decision lies. I mean, as it turns out, they were rattled anyway, and I think the decision to play them did more harm than it did good. But I think there's also the case to be made that by dropping certain players, he could have, you know, opened up fissures in the dressing room and, and what looks like a not very happy camp could have been even more unhappy. But look, I'm as disappointed as you boys. I can just see the defence there or, or maybe I'm trying to see a defence there because I don't want to admit that Dino made a clangor. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a tough one, isn't it? And, you know, ultimately he's he's the man paid to do it. But 
the, the worrying thing was was when the team was announced and uh, I was watching Gary Neville on Sky and Gary Neville said then, I, I can't see how this system works against against Arsenal. And then you think someone external is looking at that team and saying that's not going to work. Um that's that's a bit of a that's a bit of a worry. Not that Gary Neville is the coaching oracle as we as we know, but you know, and he'd admit that. We, but. He seems to be impervious to any of Solskjaer's fallibilities, uh, <laughs> yeah, which is really you know, which has actually really damaged his credibility in my view. Uh, not not this as a Man United co- podcast, but I'm like, yes, he's your mate. We all know he's your former teammate, but come on, man, you, you, he is doing gymnastics not to criticize Solskjaer when plainly. But anyway, he was bang on. He was bang on. Aston Villa podcast, Craig. He was bang on. But this is this is an interesting thing. So you're you're like uh, the the neutral party here, Andy. I'm I'm the devil on the shoulder and Daniel's the angel on the shoulder. <laughs> so we need you to provide balance. And a bit unlike Dean Smith's starting eleven, which had no balance. Well, the, the the balance for me is that I mean I've I've spoken about it before on here. I never agree with keeping the same team, win, lose, or draw. I just think unless there are a complete lack of options, I think one or two changes every game is 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 how you keep things fresh. Um, keep players interested, keep players feeling like they've got an opportunity and they're going to rotate through the team. You know, obviously there are certain players which who who play every week and that's that's fine, that's the same everywhere. But you know, I I, I never agree with keeping the same team, and certainly not after a defeat like that. Um, so that that's my balance <laughs> to it. So either way, Dean Smith's uh, wrong <laughs> in my opinion, but. Um, I mean, Villa. Villa were immediately under pressure, you know, as Arsenal appeared to to cut through Villa's ample backline um, at will, with Aubameyang and, and Saka both causing problems. The only surprise was it took until the the twenty third minute for Arsenal to capitalise as as Party stole in from a corner to to head past Martinez for yet another set piece goal against Villa. Even at this early stage, it appeared that there would be no way back for, for, for Villa in this match. Arsenal were picking up space all over the pitch and, and Villa just seemed unable to hold on to possession in any meaningful way or create anything. What did you... <laughs> it's an obvious question, really, but what did you see of, of, as the issues in that first half? I think it was kind of ironic we were playing under the Friday night lights because it was a case of heads down, eyes closed, can't pass. I think uh, we were, we just could not string a pass together. It was it was abysmal. It's about as bad as I've seen seen Villa play under Smith in that regard. But I think what worried me even more is we were out fought and we were out fought by Arsenal, who were traditionally the flakiest of flaky teams. I think they were beating us to every challenge, winning every second ball and and bullying us. I mean, I'll I'll defend Buendia all day long because I think he's unfit and he should not be starting in the middle, but he was manhandled by Arsenal's midfield and, and pushed off of everything. So too was McGinn. So too was the entire back line. And I think that's what upset me more than anything is the fact that we just did not look up for the fight whatsoever and I said on here last week that the one thing I wanted to see win lose or draw was a reaction and we didn't get that but one other thing I'd note which worried me we had no shots no shots on target and three touches in the opposition's box and that wasn't just to do with this Arsenal game we scored two first half goals all season one of which is barely a first half goal because it was Ings's scissor kick in the dying embers of stoppage time of the first half 
And we know from last year, Villa are a team that if we don't score first, we don't win games. And that really worries me. We are slow out the traps this year. And, and I think that speaks of the season so far. I think we are we look unfit, we look unprepared, and we're a quarter of the way through the season and still don't look like we're up to speed yet. The whole Villa team, I, I, I agree with that, uh, all, all that, Daniel. So there we are. That's the first one so far today. <laughs> oh, we've made up. I'm going to see if we can disagree on something moving forward. Is, is Trezeguet a talking point anywhere? No. Um, Should be. Even a one-legged Trezeguet could have impl- improved that Do you know what? Team. Ironically, ironically <laughs> Trezeguet is just the player you need in that kind of situation. Everyone's kind of head's, head's gone. Um and and Trezeguet, you know, he's going to, he's, for his lack of quality, he's never going to be let down in endeavour. He's going to run for every ball. He's going to fight. And that that lifts the fans. It lifts the other players. So ironically, dare I say, Trezeguet would have been really helpful against Arsenal. However, um, yeah, the, the whole Villa team, and this was perhaps a hangover from Wolves. I'm not a psychologist, but I would guess, I mean, everyone, they were more nervous than a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs what was going on was unbelievable. They were quivering, like they 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 were literally quivering. They couldn't string a pass together. Buendia was just getting bullied and manhandled. He was doing some some really questionable stuff. McGinn, we had a chat about McGinn last week. People are talking about McGinn being world class, top class, and and we said on this very podcast last week, McGinn has the, the all the capabilities in the world, but he needs to be consistent. Worst player on the pitch against Tottenham, best player on the pitch against Wolves, one of the worst players on the pitch again against Arsenal, p- possibly responsible for two goals. This is the kind of stuff that we can't have if we're going to progress. John McGinn needs to pull his finger out of his backside and decide if he's, if he's a top player or if he's a lower, if he, if, or if he's a championship player. You can't be both things. Consistency is key. And um, and all of them, McGinn included, the only player I think comes out of that performance with any credit in that first half was probably Emi Martinez, who did his level best to keep us going. But the whole team was a mess. And that's why I'll reiterate the point earlier that I believe that Dean Smith, as the manager, has to make a change a little bit earlier on. There's no, There, there is no hard and fast rule which says, oh no, I can only do this at halftime he can make substitutions whenever he wants. He can make tactical changes whenever he wants. It's his responsibility to see it's not working and to change something around. Even if that's just bringing on uh, Marvelous just to, you know, clog some spaces. I mean, that would have upset people, but at least it would have been, at least you're trying. Try something. Don't do anything. Don't, don't not do anything until half time when we're getting overran. Uh, that's That was the most disappointing thing. Yeah, I mean, we, we mentioned McGinn there and, um, you know, I'm probably I've got a bit of a blind spot where McGinn's concerned. I, you know, I, I do kind of. Um, I think it's because I, I want him to do so well, and we spoke spoke about him last week, and I think that's 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 the view of the fans. But certainly, he was one of those players. Like, I mean, I, I don't think anyone apart from, like you say, Martinez, um, escapes much criticism um, on that first half performance. The thing I would say is that. You almost know from the first thirty seconds of the match um, how Villa are going to approach it. Sometimes you can see they're sparking and they're really on it, and that the, the the passes are going into feet and they're moving moving the ball forward straight away. Other times you can tell they're they're all half a yard off it. You know they 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 they're just too casual. Um, they want too much time on the ball. 
you know they're, they're not really thinking about their passing then you know it's too lazy and casual and and um and and off the pace and arsenal obviously their intention was to hit us hard early on um and anyone who thought that wouldn't be the case is is just doesn't understand the you know doesn't understand the um the, the, you know the way arsenal are, are, are playing at the moment um, that's how they are. They're on the front foot, um, hit teams early, um, and that's exactly what happened. And we were in no headspace. The headspace was completely wrong to be able to to, to match that or, or or counter it. And and um, I don't know whether that that's just the group of players we have or whether that comes from the manager. I don't know. But that's that's the worrying thing when you can tell that early on that we're going to be that poor. That's where it's got to come down to the players for me because, I mean, we say about Dino making a change. There's not much he can yell from the sidelines when there's 50,000 Gunners fans in the stadium. But the players, surely, we've got experienced pros there who can see that playing it out from the back is not working. I could see that sat on my couch hundreds of miles away. How the players on the pitch can see that and just punt it long for a bit, lads. Don't start playing it out from the back when you're getting pressed every time. And I think that's the worrying thing. We we said, I think over the summer, we were worried about the lack of leaders at this club. And I think, I think that's the real concerning thing here for me. Not that Dino didn't change it, but that some of those players didn't go, look, they're pressing us here. Let's get back to basics, clear our lines and, and try and quieten the crowd down instead we insisted on playing it out the back much as Arsenal used to do and and early in the season got absolutely brutalized in the media for doing it against Brentford and rightfully so they're playing out from the back when they shouldn't we did exactly the same thing here and for me it's up to the the players Mings and McGinn amongst that who who are the kind of leaders in this side to say lads this isn't working let's play it safe for five ten minutes yeah I think I think that's it really I think um you know, it's 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 well, it's 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 how much responsibility I suppose is, is is afforded them on the field, isn't it? As well, you know how how much you know when you think back to um, you know other sides, you talk about sort of Arsene Wenger's sides, or certainly the later later Arsene Wenger sides, it was all directed by him. You know, whereas you look at Di Matteo's uh, Champions League winning Chelsea team. You know, I don't think he he got a word in edgeways at all in that in that um, uh, in that dressing room, did he? It was all it was all the players. So it just depends on the on on the balance. But you would you would have thought that you know players should have the ability really to to take control of things from the from, you know from on the pitch. Um, but but managers can change. You, you, you don't and you don't have to make a substitution to change the formation either. And change the style of play and change the, you know, switch to a different, a different, a different plan. Yeah, you could even say, you know, one thing that can come on from the sideline is, all right, lads, we're getting battered here. Flat back five, uh, Dougie McGinn sit in front. We're just going to weather the storm for 15 minutes. As you say, quiet in the crowd. Nope. We're going to do a bit of Burnley, park the bus just for 15 minutes. So everyone gets there gets their stuff together and then we can go into half time maybe just one nil down or nil nil and then we can look to address it there there are other things you can do you don't just have to keep doing the same thing you know we had five defenders on the pitch you know Andy's favorite so we could have used them you know why not use them as five defenders for 10 minutes all right lads uh, fullbacks don't cross the halfway line everyone sit in we're going to just let Arsenal play in front of us while we all calm down we're going to keep our shape 
If Buendia, Ings and Watkins can do something magical for us, great. If not, we come into halftime and we we, we, we rethink it. But to, again, for, for, for the, and it's not just Smith, it's Shakespeare, it's Cutler, it's Danks, it's uh, Nanny McPhee, who has a lot of questions to answer now because we seem to be conceding corners every week. It's, it's, it's up to them to communicate something. It doesn't necessarily have to be a substitute, but something should have changed after 15 minutes when you see we're, we're, we're getting absolutely tonked. Um, something has to change. You can't just wait till half time. It's not, it's not okay. <laughs> ah. You mentioned the coaching staff there, Craig. A question for you boys. Is it too simplistic to say that the absence of John Terry and Richard O'Kelly is partly to blame for this? Because, I don't know, maybe I'm oversimplifying things, but I don't imagine we have that poor a defensive performance when JT was still around the club. Well, we well, did. I mean, I... Sorry, go on, Andy. Uh, my answer to that is, um, first, it's, there's two parts to it. Firstly, um, if, if we're not very careful, it won't be long before John Terry's back at the club. Um, <laughs> and, and, and secondly, um, yeah, I do think definitely um, both of those men um, leaving the club has made a difference. The, the more worrying thing is um, as to why they've left um, and whether there is something a little bit more um, going on behind the scenes and um, reasons why they've left are, are not just um, the kind of benign reasons that were that were put out in the in the public domain, but um, without doubt, certainly John Terry, in terms of defence um, specifically, is uh, is a huge miss in my opinion. Well, the the, the rumour is the rumour is that uh, John Terry left because he wanted to be a number one. Obviously, that's uh, you know he's he's hasn't been able to do that so far, but still early days. November is normally second season for the Football League in the Premier League. So I'm sure John Terry is poised for any opportunity. Maybe he's got his beady little eyes on a Newcastle job. And uh, Richard O'Kelly, rumour has it, was being demoted to youth, the youth team. And he was like, no, not, not, not so fast, my friend. I'd rather leave. Um, I would urge anyone who thinks that John Terry is a magic defensive elixir to study Aston Villa's, uh, Aston Villa's first season in the Premier League, where we were as bad, as bad defensively as you could imagine, even worse than we are now um, for most of the campaign. So, you know, it's not like John Terry did not oversee similarly sloppy defensive uh, um, displays while we were while we were in charge. But definitely you can say, I think, with some with some credibility that the upheaval in the coaching system, along with the upheaval in the playing staff, not to belabor the point, captain goes, new signings, you know, COVID, you know, interrupted preseason, all the stuff we talked about before, that certainly seems to be having an impact. And the fact that Axel Twanzebi is in the team and he's crap. <laughs> is he? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, if, if if someone can point to me, if someone can point to me, and and the only thing anyone, anyone, because I've got a couple of mates who are Man United fans who I've been loving giving them some needle over the weekend. I tell you what, um, <laughs> the only thing any Man United fan can point to me in terms of Axel Twanzebi's whole football career is that he may have had a good game once against Mbappe. This is not a player who's ever established himself in the Premier League. Um, he was half fit player for us in in, a, in the championship side, which finished fifth. Um, why anyone thinks, other than the fact he's got Man United on his CV, that he's a defender that should be playing for a top ten, top eight Premier League side? I'm not sure. Uh, he's never he's never done it before. He's never demonstrated it. Um, to me, he's he should be behind Courtney Horse, but I, you know, I think I made this point yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> at length last week, so I won't go back on I it. Mean, well, yeah. It's an interesting point, and you wonder if if he had kind of um, made the move and come up to the Premier League with Villa, 
um, and played for us for the last two years, he might be in a much better position. Um, the fact he's he's kind of rotted in in Man United's reserves, um, let's say playing the odd game here and there, um, and having some injuries as well has has certainly not not kicked his career on in the way that it it could have done. He's a talented he's a talented well, he's, player in my opinion and. He, yeah, he is. He is a talented player, and I, I, I'm being slightly flippant. You know, I do think he has a lot of ability. I should say that, but I will also say, you know, he has about as much. In, he has had about as much interest in playing first team football thus far in his career as Habib Bay. He seems to be quite happy picking up the money, being on the bench for Man United. Maybe alone here, maybe alone there. I've got a nice pay packet, probably a nice penthouse in Manchester, living a lovely life. Hasn't pushed himself, hasn't tested himself. And now we we're the we're the we're the guinea pigs. Aston Villa are the guinea pigs who have to stick this guy in the team and uh, develop him. And again, if he develops, Man United are going to charge more money for him. And if he doesn't develop, we continue to concede three goals in the last ten minutes. So we're 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 damned if we do, damned if we don't. I hate it. Sixty grand a week, wasn't he? Have it back. I think it was I mean, great yeah. chant though. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'll move on to 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 the penalty and. Um, you know, just on half time, Arsenal did did double their lead as VAR intervened to award a penalty as Matt Target fouled Lacazette in the area. Aubameyang's initial kick was saved by Martinez. However, he scored the rebound. Um, there were a couple of issues with this. Um, firstly, the award of the penalty itself and whether it it should have been given. Um, plus, and Smith and and several other people I've heard suggested that it was. Um, it was it was as it was awarded on half time. The rebound of the shot, the initial save, shouldn't have been allowed. It should have been one shot and then half time, because of the time, the the, the length. Because essentially it was on half time. Um, did Villa have a case with either claim? And I mean, Villa fans seem to have um, seem to have lost the will to to argue at this stage, <laughs> as we certainly deserve to be at least two nil down um, at that point. So maybe. The fact that we perhaps deserved it, um, you know, but but ultimately, there's a big difference from between going in one nil down and going in two nil down. There's a lot to unpack on this one, isn't there? I think on first glance, I thought it was a penalty, and on second glance, it looks like the kind of VAR penalty that they're going to be counting out the game this year. I thought the Stockley part were going to stop intervening in the little fouls and let the game run, and that's what this one felt like, not least because Lacazette went over theatrically and, and made the most out of it. And then on the actual penalty itself, where it should have been given or not, I, I mean, I'm not up to the laws of the game, but it, it struck me that it should be a, a shot and no time for the rebound. Um, Pete Shad, who does the excellent Holy Trinity show on YouTube, who's a very knowledgeable man about the laws of the game, he said it should be the penalty and done. There's no time for, for a, a knock-in afterwards. And and it's a real sliding doors moment in that match. We've been playing terribly Emmy Martinez saves that on the cusp of half time. We go in one down, and suddenly we're right back in it. Our tails are high. Dino changes things at half time, and, and we're back in that game, and it's a transitional moment in the season. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it would have saved the game for us. I don't know what would have happened, but it feels like we come off worse from 90% of the VAR calls that happen, even when they've supposedly changed the laws of the game. But I don't know. I'm, I'm with the Villa fans online. My soul was destroyed by this point, so the penalty didn't really feel like it mattered to me, even though since looking at it, I've, it's really pissed me off. Yeah, I don't think it was a penalty, but I also don't think it was a major injustice. You know, we've had much worse injustices um, <laughs> at the hands of VAR. 
uh, probably none more so than some of the nonsense uh, with the Manchester United games. Uh, with uh, you know the, the the one that still sticks in the craw is the uh, Bruno Fernandez foul mm. on Esri Konza, which somehow he called a uh, a penalty for Man United when I think we were we were nil nil or one one. And then the same thing happened uh, at their place with Douglas Luiz, um, tr- Pogba tripping over himself moments after telling Shaw to dive um, and then giving them a, a penalty. Um, so I didn't feel like, I don't feel like it was a like a travesty. You can see why it was given. Um, Target's got the ball, but, you know, has he got the man first and then got the ball? Either way, Target has absolutely no idea that Lacazette, where Lacazette is. He's not shown any spatial awareness. And you always say, or I was always told, um, you know, when, when, when my, my very crappy level of football that I play that by any manager or coach, don't give the referee a decision to make mm. in that area. Don't let them make a decision. Try not to leave your feet. Don't dive in. Don't give the referee a decision to make because then you're running the risk. Um, Matt Target did all those things. Lacazette was facing away from goal. There was no present danger. He's dove in full force. He's definitely hit Lacazette. Lacazette has gone down like a ton of bricks, but it's not like there's no contact. And he's given the referee a decision to make, and the referee is only too happy to point to the spot. So I don't think it's an absolute travesty. Um, and it also, it's not a travesty in, in the context of the game because Arsenal should have been three or four up, never mind two. So that I wasn't, I think the, the penalty decision was harsh, but I don't think it's so outrageous that we need to get our, uh, our you know, our picket, our pitchforks and, 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 and be storming the uh, um, Stockley Park just yet. No, I, t- I would agree with that. And I think when it was given, I, I kind of felt that we were almost certainly going to lose anyway. So, um, but at that point of the game, it is salvageable, isn't it? Still for yeah. 1-0. And the main issue with it was, I was quite happy with the award of the penalty, really. I, th- I you know, I thought, fair enough. It was it was a foul. It was clumsy. Um, all the things that you said. Um, it was more to do with the spot kick and the fact that it, that the rebound shouldn't have been allowed to stand, um, you know, and I mean, Kelly Dalgleish on, uh, Kelly Cates, I should say, on, um, on on Sky Sports was trying to explain that it was because the ref stopped the game. He didn't blow for half time. He stopped the game to look at the VAR decision. Um, but I thought you had they had to wait for a kind of break in play for that anyway. The ball was live. He stopped the game to look at the screen. And then gave the penalty and allowed the rebound because there was still, say, eight or seven or eight seconds left um, of the of the half. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. And also the fact that since when a football timing's been that accurate, yeah. you know, it's not like, it was like in, the fiftieth minute, wasn't it, when the rebound went in? It was ludicrous. <laughs> exactly. It was. It was. It was totally, um, you know, inexplicable. Really, I think if you you know, if you first of all, the ref shouldn't be blowing while the ball is still live to go and check a decision. That should be done once the ball goes dead or he blows for half time. And then if he has blown for half time, um, it should be a penalty kick and that's it. Um, so yeah, it should have been a, a nice save by Martinez and and going in one nil down, um, which would have been salvageable. Um, you know, as expected, Leon Bailey. Um, replaced um, Axel Twanzebi at half-time and Villa reverted to a more comfortable 4-2-3-1 shape. Um, and there was a distinct difference, really, in the in the, in the in the two performances in each half um, in terms of the threat posed. 
And I think Watkins in particular started to look a little bit more dangerous, get more of the ball on the left-hand side. However, it didn't last as another poor pass from uh, John McGinn set an Arsenal attack off and Emil Smith-Rowe um, had a weak effort which deflected in off Tyrone Mings. Despite this, Villa continued to plug away and, and did get a goal back as Jacob Ramsey lashed in a, an excellent effort um, for his first Villa goal. And moments later, Watkins appeared to have had a, a guilt-edged chance um, but couldn't quite connect with the cross, which would have um, been a certain goal and, and maybe caused some jitters um, at the at the Emirates in the last few minutes. It was certainly a better second-half performance, albeit the game had kind of gone by this stage. Are there any positives we can take out of this game at all? I think there's definitely positives. You used the word comfortable there, which I think is really important in this set. And we, in the first half, we saw how uncomfortable the Villa players looked. The body language was all over the place. I mean, Matt Target concorded his body into a couple of bizarre positions in the six-yard box for the penalty and for a clearance. He, he looked like he'd lost all control of his limbs at one point. And then Tyro Mings screaming at the sky every decision that didn't go his way. McGinn getting up in his face. The body language was all off from us. Second half, the body language looked right again I mean apart from McGinn's sloppy pass we suit a 4-2-3-1 our players know how to play it they're comfortable in it and I think we saw that in the second half I think importantly it sparked a few players into life as well I think you you mentioned Ollie Watkins there who looked a changed player on the left in the second half and and maybe that's what he needs to get himself out of the funk is put him back on the left where he's played a lot of games and get a different look at things but there's definitely positives. I'd have been a lot more upset on here. I'd have been going full nuclear if we hadn't shown something second half. But I think we showed we showed some fight at least, and we showed maybe a template going forwards. That I don't know if the three five two is not dead after this, and we don't start with a back four next week. I, I don't know what Dino's smoking, but I think that there's positives to be taken for sure. And and you know we had chances. Surprise, surprise, we didn't take them. But at least we came out and and drew the second half, if nothing else. Yeah, we did. And I like that. That was a positive. And, and, and we drew the second half and probably should have won the second half. Ramsey had another uh, a really good chance when I think the uh, Saliba, was it? Or one of the, the Arsenal defenders slipped and uh, he had a left footed chance, which he could have crossed. Uh, Watkins could have had a, a tap in. Bailey looked menacing. And um, but for, you know, another really goal giveaway club uh, moment from John McGinn. Again, this is why everyone who thinks John McGinn's a number 10, this is why he's not a number 10, ladies and gentlemen. His pass accuracy, as, as may have been mentioned on this <laughs> podcast, may have been... Have you, have you mentioned this it, before, It Craig? may have been mentioned. <laughs> it's not good enough. And that was why he tried to thre- thread a, a ball. It goes to Smith-Rowe and, and Smith-Rowe scores a really soft, soft goal. Um, Lord knows where uh, Cash, Cash was gone. Konza was nowhere to be seen and, and one ball over the top and Smith Rowe, who is, is hardly uh, Usain Bolt, is, is through one-on-one with Mings. Mings actually does well to, to block the shot and then unfortunately, that seems to happen with Mings, it's happened to Saar in the, with the Saar goal in, uh, in uh, uh, the Watford game as well. He gets a block on it but it bounces into the net because that was our luck that day. But the shape was much better, Watkins looked much better, much more like the Ollie Watkins that we know and love. Um, Danny Ings came alive and, and, and had a, had a, a couple of uh, half chances. 
it just looked much, much better. And Leon Bailey, I mean, he didn't seem to be doing a great deal the other way. Um, I'm sure. I'm not sure how committed he was to helping out uh, the, on the defensive uh, with the side of things, but that might be another thing. But the team were competitive in the first half. It looked low. It looked like Arsenal were, were, were title challengers and Villa were relegation fodder. In the second half, it looked like two relatively evenly matched teams. Now, I do accept that Arsenal certainly would have taken their foot off the gas somewhat with, with a three-goal lead, but Villa had chances to make it very uncomfortable, as you alluded to with Ollie Watkins and also the Ramsey chance. I mean, it would have been very, very harsh on Arsenal if this had ended 3-3, but um, that was what it should look like moving forward. And I'm going to defend the 3-5-2 a little bit here, which is probably going to be counter to what everyone believes. <laughs> the, okay, that's enough. That's <laughs> the end of the <laughs> Just very quickly, the 3-5-2 shouldn't be dead completely. We saw, particularly in the Man United game and particularly in the Chelsea game, the 3-5-2 does have a place when, when we're going to be under the cosh and when we're going to be um, 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 really you know, defending for our lives. So I think we should probably see it maybe in games against Man City, maybe against Liverpool. But what we should not see it is in games like this. So I think the 3-5-2 should be dead for now. The next few games, as we're going to talk about in a minute, all with teams in and around us, as they say. Um, so we definitely shouldn't be setting up like that for the next few games. But I would expect to see it return later on in the season when we have some more, um, you know, when we're going to be really under the gun. And Do you guys um, feel that... Um, um, uh, the back four needs to come back. We need that flat back four. I think we're all agreed on that. So, do you do we feel that we're going forward with a, a four three three or or more back to last season's four two three one? What 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 what's your feelings on that? It's a tough one. I, I, the problem is the personnel. I think then the problem is Buendia at the moment. Much as I hate to say it, we keep trying to shoehorn him in as a ten, and he's not a ten. He's not physical enough to be a ten. He's he played his whole time for Norwich on the right, and and I have a feeling pre-season I said he'll play as a ten for us, but he clearly isn't suited to that. At least not at the moment. And I think that's the problem with a four-two-three-one because who else do you put in that ten position? So I don't know. I guess maybe the four-three-three. I mean, they're, they're both interchangeable, right? If you're a professional footballer, surely you can play both. But I don't know. Craig, your two cents? I would advocate for the return of the 4-3-3. I would advocate for the dropping of either Danny Ings or Ollie Watkins. Um, uh, I think as nicely as Watkins played on the wing, I think um, that actually, you know, we're going to be better served with him through the middle or Ings through the middle. Um, and um, and I think that's fine. And I would have Brendia on the right, of, uh, in his in his preferred position, I would have Bailey on the left, and um, I would think that that would give us some real appetite. It would be Douglas Louise, it would be John McGinn, and it would probably be Sanson uh, or or Jacob Ramsey, obviously. Um, but but it would definitely be a four four three three, and um, the four two three one. I think you need a number ten for that. I don't think we we will. We've seen so far, and that you know. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future performance. But so far, yeah, Buendia has been way out of his depth in the number 10 position. He just wants far too much time on the ball. I don't know if he still thinks he's in the championship, but he thinks he has He thinks he thinks has double the time that he has. And that that is time and space that you get on the wing because it's much less congested. But midfielders like Partey uh, the other day just absolutely gobbling him up. It's a physical mismatch and, and we need Wendy and it picking up pockets of space like he did for his lovely goal against uh, Brentford where he's coming from the wing. Uh, no one's picked him up and he's banged one into the top corner. Bailey is going to do what Bailey does. 
And then we've got lots of goals in the team. I think a 4-3-3 is absolutely the way to go. And I think that is what we'll see in uh, up, up against West Ham. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased, you know, we're, we're on the same page that perhaps we need to, we need to change the shape of it um, back to something more familiar. As you know, Craig, when things can get fuzzy around the edges, you know, things can get, things can, things can look a little bit out of shape and, you can struggle sometimes to to find your way through these things um, if you don't if you neglect things if you if you don't keep on top of these 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 certain things in terms of the shape. Absolutely, and you know it's Halloween this week, everyone. We're recording on Monday, October the twenty fifth, and towards the end of the week, Sunday, it is Halloween. Now, lots of you will be going to Halloween parties. Some of you won't be. Um, I hope that you're COVID safe at these parties because, as we're learning, mass gatherings without masks are not doing so good. Um, so try and be safe. But think about your costume this year. Maybe you're going to go as a professional wrestler. I dressed up as one uh, last week. Jeff Hardy, if you're interested. <laughs> Maybe you're going to go as a witch or a goblin or a ghoul. Maybe you're going to go as Harry Potter or Hermione Granger. But what you may need to think about is going the extra mile. So here's my suggestion. Visit our partners at www.manscape.com. Get yourself the Performance Package 4.0 with the Lawnmower 4.0. Get yourself in the mirror with a light. There's also a light on the end of the razor, by the way, so that can help as well. And I think you should all think about shaving your pubes into the shape of a famous ghost ghoul, maybe a skull and crossbones. And then what you'll have at the top of your shaft is some kind of Halloween special. (laughs) You can even paint it with some fluorescent lighting. And then at the end of the Halloween party, maybe you get lucky or maybe you're you're going there with your, your spouse and then, you know, she's undressing you from your mummy outfit. You're unwrapping her from her mummy outfit. (laughs) <laughs> and as she's turning around in a circle, and as you're turning around in a circle, you stick on the old uh, the old blue light, and what does she see staring back at her? But the face of a giant goblin with a giant nose. <laughs> the nose is pointed and ready for attention. I can't and help they, my face, Craig. They are going to be so happy that you manscaped yourself or went that extra mile for your Halloween costume, so you can get busy on Halloween. So in nine months' time, should be around August, no, July, you can have yourself a summer manscaped baby with your Halloween loving because your partner is going to be so delighted that you went the extra mile and did a Halloween costume in your pubes, they are going to be itching to get down with you. But you're not going to be itching anymore. (laughs) because you're manscaped. So get 20% off and free shipping with our promo code LAMP. That's 20% off and free shipping with our promo code L-A-M-P. And that's free worldwide shipping, by the way, so you could be manscaping left, right, and center. I hope that you can shave your pubes. I hope you can get some loving this Valentine's Day, (laughs) this Halloween even. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, there you go. You can see how my thinking goes. And uh, yeah, enjoy it with manscaped.com. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Craig. I don't need to dress up at Halloween. It's just Frankenstein. <laughs> Frankenstein, that's it. But I know, 
Can we get a picture of Craig in costume on the on the Twitters? I need to see him as Jeff Hardy. I think you're making I a good do, Jeff I, Hardy. I have a pic. I do have a picture from 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 a Halloween party last week. I don't know if it's suitable for a public distribution though, but we'll see. <laughs> I'll think about it. Could top that off by doing dropping the elbow off a double decker bus, just for authenticity. But um... <laughs> that's not Jeff Hardy's finishing move, Andy. It's the Swanton bomb. Oh my <laughs> Sorry. God. Sorry. Schoolboy oh, error. Oh Schoolboy error. Sorry. Come on, Andy. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, back to football. Of course, social media has been awash with fans questioning Dean Smith since the match. He has now entered that serious questions being asked phase of his reign with concerns of the formation and, and an apparent hesitancy to change things when it seems obvious um, that it's not working, whether that's in match or between matches, it seems with West Ham at home and Southampton away to come before the international break. How much pressure is Smith under now and potentially after these two matches? Yeah, I mean, he's under immense pressure. You you lose three on the bounce in this league, you're going to be under pressure. And the performances, I think, is the more worrying thing. I've said all along I'll back Dean. I I said that he could take us down and I'd still back him staying the job because of what he's done. and, And I don't think we should forget that. I also don't think we should forget there's been plenty of mitigating circumstances this season. We've, you know, the preseason, losing Jack, losing the coaching staff, the injuries. He's not had it easy so far, and, and we're not terribly positioned. We're not doing great, but it's not like we're sitting bottom. Um, but he's under pressure, and, and he's got to pull it out, and I expect him to pull it out. I think this was always going to be a transitional season, and, and we don't need to add another transition in there by getting rid of the coach. And I mean, it's Halloween season coming up now, and there's a there's a forward scare story for any Villa fans out there, and that's just Steve Bruce is available. So be careful what you wish for if you're, you're hanging the sword over Dean's head. Yeah, I mean it's it's tricky. I you know I'm not going to um, the, the the Smith out stuff is 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 what it is. I think uh, people are angry uh, because they don't like to lose games. To lose three games on the spin is is not good. I'm not going to try and dress it up as uh, you know otherwise. But we are still less than ten games into the season. I mean it's not like we're bottom. You know if we were in Norwich's position on two points or Newcastle's position on four points after nine games, yeah maybe. But you know we're one win away from uh, we're one win away from 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 being comfortably in mid table. We're in thirteenth at the moment. We finished eleventh last season. Uh, we're nowhere near the relegation zone. And you know the world's greatest manager of all time, Marco Bielsa, has only managed to win one game. Sean Dyche is yet to win a game. <laughs> Obviously Newcastle and Norwich haven't won a game. You know Palace haven't won a game. New manager there, Vieira, Hasenhutl, who some people have touted as a Dean Smith replacement. Replacement has only won one game. Um, you know, and, and, and Arsenal and Leicester are only one game kind of, you know, a, few, a couple of points ahead. Um, and, and Arsenal are considered be, to be on the resurgence. And, and uh, Brendan Rodgers is considered a, a contender for the Man United job. So it isn't good. It isn't nice, but it isn't abysmal either. I think that if we can be around 10th place come Christmas, I think that, that that's pretty solid. Um, because I always said, and we always said on this podcast, we thought the second half of the season is going to be where Villa come into their own once everyone's settled in. But having said all that, you can't keep losing games. You have to win a game here or there, and you have to win a game in style here or there, like we did with the Everton win, to to keep the wolves from the door and keep the, the baying fans at, at bay. <laughs> That's, that was a stupid sentence. But you have to... But what Dino's got to do, I said earlier with Matt Target and the penalty thing, 
Don't give the ref a decision to make by sliding in or doing anything, anything stupid. Dean Smith is the same thing. You've got bosses in in, in Nassif, uh, Soares and Wes, Wes Edens, Christian Perslow, who are very, very serious individuals. Do not give them a decision to make by losing stupid games when you've got 2-0 up with 10 minutes to go, by playing the wrong team against Arsenal and finally failing to adjust. Don't be stubborn. Make sure that you're not giving them a decision to make, Dean, because if you lose another two or three games and you get sacked, you know, he would only, I wouldn't support it, but he would only have himself to blame. You couldn't say, you couldn't say, oh, well, you know, Dean Smith didn't deserve it. You can't lose five or six games on the spin and expect to stay in a job in the Premier League. But the Premier League is a very tough league. You know, we've just seen Rafa, you know, one of the best managers in the league, apparently just gets, you know, gets smashed. I think Watford scored four or five goals in 10 minutes. We've just seen Man United, one of the most expensively assembled squads in the history of world football, get absolutely tonked 5-0 by Liverpool. So, it, you know, when people say there are no easy games in, in, the, uh, in the Premier League, you know, it's true, apart from maybe Norwich. So it's not a shame. It's not just shame and embarrassment to lose to, to some good clubs with good players. But Dino does need to arrest the slide. And now, finally... Finally, he does have his first 11 to pick from. Trezeguet accepted Daniel. So um, now I think we can begin to judge him. But he needs a win, or at least a draw, I would say, against um, against West Ham, just to keep the wolves from the door, as it were. Yeah, I think that's that's true. And, I mean, I feel a lot different about it than I did on Friday evening. Um, I was I was concerned for him Friday evening. I thought, you know, if, if, if we go into the West Ham match, lose that game, he could even go before Southampton, or you know, or suddenly you're under a, you're in the situation where you've got a game maybe to to save your job, which is the position he was in about eighteen months ago. If you believe the, the stories, he had the um, the Chelsea game was going to be his last match, um, and of course that game was was called off um, because of COVID, and we all know what happened after that. You know, and he, and he, he turned things around and obviously had a very good season. Uh, relatively speaking, last season. I think part of the problem is that there's this idea in, in the Premier League that um, that there is almost this right we have to um, continued progress on an upward trajectory year on year. Um, and that's just not the case. It, it doesn't work like that, particularly when you're, you're not one of the, the big clubs that can go and cherry-pick players. There will always be a situation, as, as has happened this summer, where you think things are going well and suddenly you know, one or two of your top players are gone and you're having to rebuild again. Um, that's how the big clubs keep teams like Aston Villa, Everton. Um, it'll be the same with Newcastle you know, at arm's length. That's how they do it. They take their best, best players every year um, to just keep them at arm's length. And um and, and and that's that that's what happens. So there's this there's this illusion that you can keep your best players, add more quality in the summer, and you'll go up a couple of places or you'll be fighting for Europe or whatever. And it's just not the reality. The reality is that there's a glass ceiling and um you're far better um coming from a stable base because one season, you just need one season where everything comes together. Um, and you're more likely to do that, I think, if you are, you know, you know, if you if you've if you've got a, a good infrastructure, and Dean Smith and his coaching team, you know, I, I look at like Neil Cutler. I mean, 
if Dean Smith goes next week, then the, the, the goalkeeping coach goes and all that work that's gone into our goal, goalkeeping department goes. How do you replace that? You know, it's, it's, it's not as simple as just changing the manager. You have to, there has to be a plan as well in place. Now, that's not to say that there isn't, and, you know, on, it's on a, maybe on a slightly different level, but of course, you know, at the end of last season, um, Gemma Davis had kept the, the Villa women's team in the Premier League, uh, or, you know, the, um, the, the Super League, and, and um, she lost the job. And they brought in someone who they thought could take it on to another level. And, of course, that's that's the other problem that Dean Smith might have if if, if, if Perslow, etc., feel that he has taken this taken the team as far as he can and they need someone to progress the argument. I don't always believe in that. I don't always think it works out. Um, you know, but that's a, that's a possibility as well. But at the minute... I would back Dean Smith to 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 arrest the slide, get a couple of results, and um, everything will look a bit a bit more rosy going into no, uh, going into November. Um, I don't know what you feel. Yeah, I mean the other thing to think about here is who else is available. I see the Smith Out Brigade are touting names like Antonio Conte online, and I mean, come on, guys. I mean, <laughs> we are not getting Conte. I mean, like, I think he'll not want to go to United, let alone Villa. And I think that's the problem we live in. This kind of these bubbles, these individual bubbles, we've seen it in every part of life where you're trapped in your own little fantasy land. We are on this pod. It's the three of us every week talking our own, and we must have listeners that disagree with everything we say. And I think that's the thing online. People just get caught in the fantasy land of Smith's out, Conte's in, and suddenly we're the best team in the world. And it just doesn't work like that. And I think, Andy, you're right. There's a there's a glass ceiling in the Premier League. We've seen what happens when you chop and change managers trying to get success. Look at Everton. Look at Spurs. Look at anyone above us who's tried to get there and failed consistency is key I think it, it, it keeps you up and, and it gives you a chance of, of making that breakthrough that hopefully gets you to that next level but but yeah who are we replacing him with it's definitely not Conte yeah I think the Smith out brigade are a little bit delusional in terms of some some of them some of them in terms of you know I've even seen Zidane <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah, Zidane, yeah he's yeah he's, he's rocking up now to this mid-table Premier League club <laughs> come on Let's be a little bit. Let's be a little bit sensible. Let's take a breath. If Villa sack Dean Smith, the kind of candidate probably they're looking to attract is John Terry, probably. But he's completely unproven. I don't want to be John Terry's guinea pig at Aston Villa. Steven Gerrard doing well at Rangers again. I would not want to be Steven Gerrard's guinea pig for Aston Villa. Or you talk, you're talking about someone uh, maybe like Graham Potter. Graham Potter's done a fine job at, at, at Brighton, but again is he necessarily going to be any better than we already have? And then again, as as Andy said, you're tearing up, you're not just tearing out Smith and everything else keeps chugging along the way it is. You're tearing out the coaching team, you're tearing out Cutler, you're tearing, tearing out Shaky, you're tearing out the whole infrastructure which has get, got us where, where we are. So it's not to be done lightly. And I would say, as long as Dean Smith isn't doing disastrously, and as long as he can keep year-on-year improvement, Whatever that looks like to the board, I think that he's he's going to be safe. But again, you have to win games. You have to keep the wolves from the door because fan pressure is real. I don't think it's going to be in the stadium. Andy, you will be there on Halloween, and so you'll know. But the 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 the, the Twitterverse, the Aston Villa Twitterverse, is very very different to the 
the fans in the stadium, most of which, I wouldn't say most of which, a number of which are not necessarily even involved online. The punters are really what decides it, particularly the the, the home and the away fans that are in the stadium. Um, but I tell you one thing I don't like from the Smith out people is some of them, not all of you, but some of them seem to be wishing Villa to fail because they are so desperate to be proved right that Dean Smith's taken Villa as far as he, we can go. Like, I mean, do you want to be right or do you want Villa to win? I know which one I would prefer. I didn't like Steve Bruce, but if he had got us promoted, you know, I would have shut my mouth and said, you know what, Brucey did it, promotion specialist, yay. I mean, it turns out that he was, you know, he's an abject failure and, and, and I was right. But I didn't, want Villa, I didn't want Villa to lose so I could be right. So if you want Villa to lose and D Smith to fail just so you can be right, you may, you may need to have a look in the mirror and have a think about what kind of fan you really are. Well, I certainly don't think um, match-going fans would feel like that because, you know, why would you buy a ticket and, and go along to watch your team lose? Um, but, yeah, I absolutely agree. We we get this every single time with, with, with fans, and I'm sure there are United fans at the moment who who are wanting Solskjaer to fail so they can get their, uh, their, their next uh, big saviour f- through the door. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a nonsense, isn't it? It's an absolute nonsense. Um, you know, I I have known, for example, since <laughs> since we started playing it, that three five two wasn't going to work for, for Villa, but I wanted us to win. I was delighted it, when we beat Man it United. It did work in it certain didn't. games. It's, it's just been, not the solution for no, all the games. You can't say nonsense. it didn't work at Old Trafford or Chelsea. <laughs> It was wonderful in those games. But we lost three 0 at Chelsea. <laughs> yeah, that was that, that was Mings and Watkins. Stats yeah. and anyway, we can explain anyway. anything with stats. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, yeah, you you you'd never want your team to lose. And um, although I would say I would say in hindsight, the best match we ever lost was Fulham in the uh, in the playoff final because God knows where we'd be if we'd have won that game. But I always say that that's the only game I'm I'm now happy that we lost. Um, but you know we're we're we're, we're um, we've got every chance of moving forward. And when we look at the squad, it's still quite young. It's still a little bit inexperienced, but there's there's talent there, you know. And there's there's Bailey, there's 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 Buendia, who's nowhere near his best best form yet. And there's goals in that side with Watkins and Ings, you know, and and young players coming through and. You know the the future is still bright. It's a rocky period at the moment, though, and they're trying to navigate through um, losing, you know, half their coaching staff and 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 obviously their best player in the summer. And 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 it's it's not easy. It's not easy. And they need us on board, don't they? I was talking on Twitter the other the other day about you know play um, you know supporters leaving after. You know they'll they'll stick around and 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 chant for the team when we're six nil down to Man City, but as soon as we concede an equaliser against Wolves, everyone goes for the exits. When do you when does the team need us? When does the team need us in the stadium, cheering them on? It's when we look like we we might be about to lose a game that we should have won, and that's you know that's where they need us, and we we, we need to be absolutely bang behind them on on Sunday uh, when we go. Go to Villa Park, um, and Sunday um, is where we'll we'll head to next as we we face West Ham at home. Um, as Dean Smith looks to find a way to arrest the slide 
and win around the home crowd after these recent disasters that we've discussed. West Ham under David Moyes have become one of the Premier League's most accomplished and consistent outfits with strong performers all over the park. Um, And they don't seem to be letting the the Thursday-Sunday Europa League slog affect them in the slightest at the moment. Dino will be hoping that his squad maintains a clean bill of health and the fans will be hoping that he shows some faith in the likes of Leon Bailey, maybe Bertrand Traore, um, to add some spark to this beleaguered team. What would you be advising Smith in terms of naming the team and how he sets the team up for this match? Yeah, I think firstly on your point about the fans, I think we need the, the, fa- the players need the fans more than ever this Sunday. I think if we thought they were wobbly against Arsenal, for a couple of dodgy touches in the first five minutes and they could be extra wobbly in this one too. Um as for how he lines up, I think we, we covered it earlier. The 4 3 3, 4 2 3 1, I want to see changes now. It, I can defend him all I like for for not changing things against Arsenal, but if we don't see changes this week, then something's gone drastically wrong. So, yeah, the 4 3 3 Craig mentioned earlier, I can get fully on board with. And, and I actually think West Ham's a good game for us. We we line up pretty well against them. I think I think we can get at their centre backs, but, but make no doubts about it, they're a very, very good side who are beating teams better than Villa. And I think, uh, as an aside, uh, proof that what happens if you stick to a manager and and what can come if you stick with someone who the fans might not fancy to do the job right. But um, I think we line up pretty well against them, and I quite fancy us to take something away from this one, but only if we make the changes. And and in that regard, I'm happy to give Dino Craig's number so he can pick the team for him. All right, Dino, here's what we're going to do. First thing, Twanzebi, captain. <laughs> Ings and Watkins need another game together up front. <laughs> and the 3-5-2 isn't dead. Don't listen to the haters. No, I'm joking. I'm, I'm joking. All of those things need to stop. Um, it's time for Dino to to to, to stick or twist. Uh, Ings or Watkins, um, uh, well, it depends on Bailey. If Bailey is ready for 90 minutes, Bailey must start. If Bailey is not ready for 90 minutes, then you can play, uh, as we saw against Arsenal, the 4-3-3 with Watkins on the right wing, you can keep Ings up front and you can have Buendia in his natural position on the right-hand side. And then the midfield three picks itself, assuming again that Morgan Sanson isn't uh, is, isn't going to be ready and the rest of the team, you know, we know what that's going to be. Um, so I think that that is the only question. Is Leon Bailey ready to start 90 minutes or is he not ready to start 90 minutes? Will he need to come on as a substitute again? If Leon Bailey is ready to start, then then Lee, then then Ings or Watkins drops to the bench if he is not ready to start, um, which again I still think we should be treating him with kid kid gloves. I was a little bit nervous about him being on for forty five minutes against Arsenal. I was like, oh, has he got forty five minutes in the legs? We don't want him to break down again. So I'm I'm, I'm if Leon Bailey doesn't start on Sunday, I'm not going to be uh, with the, with the getting the bed sheet out just yet um, because I understand that you know, he's had some legally injuries. He's had no preseason. And, and I would rather, again, it was softly, softly, gently, gently, a bit like the Manscaped commercial. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I would say four, three, three Ramsey in the middle, um, with Sanson to come on. And then the front three of probably Brendia Ings and Watkins on the left to start with Bailey poised to come on, um, you know, for the last 45 minutes or so, if that is the case. And I think you, you have to, what you do have to do against this David Moyes team is defend set pieces. And we have been horrendous at defending set pieces. They are scoring from a corner every game. We are conceding from a corner every game. If we continue to do that, then they will 
they will win at West Ham that is they, West Ham will win and they'll win comfortably so we also have to arrest the slump at set pieces but I think with the back four we can do that and we can especially do it with our star header of the ball Courtney Horse who I think could be in line for a recall perhaps with Konza switching to right back but that may be not in Dino's thinking yeah, I was thinking thinking that myself. Um, you know, maybe playing playing with um, almost playing with the four centre backs. <laughs> I didn't like the three at the back, so I don't want to necessarily go with four centre backs. But in a in a in a back four, obviously, and well, it, the know. aerial bombardment that 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 West Ham are going to give you kind of necessitates it to a bit. If you can get rid of one shorty in in cash and bring in horse, that is going to make you much more robust from set pieces. So it isn't. It isn't as defensive as it sounds, Andy. But then, uh, but then I, I, I would, I would, I would um, be advocating to leave leave Target out as well. I think he's had he's had a really rough ride. Um, you know, a couple of own goals and a, and giving away a penalty. I'd be bringing in Ashley Young on the left. Um, I'd play the three in midfield. Um, I'd probably go with Nakamba, Douglas Louise, and McGinn, um, and then. Um, I would start Leon Bailey um, with Ollie Watkins and um, Wendy as the front three and uh, and go with that. Bring Traore in um, onto the bench as well to give us that option later on. But just got to keep keep it tight, <laughs> keep it tight and go back to basics and well, start what, defending. Why not do like a, a Martin O'Neill special and have four centre-backs? We could have Hawes left-back, Twanzebi and Ming centre-backs and Konza right-back. Yeah. The good old days. Good old days. Bring Pulis ball to I'm Villa surpri- Park. <laughs> I'm surprised neither of you boys are dropping McGinn. I think there's a good argument to, to dropping him out of the team, not just for for his terrible passing. He was at fault for two of the goals. The first one criminally so, in my opinion, ducking out the way of that one. And I think he's he's not looked right kind of body language-wise, and him and Ming's going at each other too didn't exactly give me all the good feels whilst watching it on TV. So I, I wonder if it's time to take Guinea out and and actually let someone else kind of step into that midfield. And, and you know, we, we talked earlier on in the pod about consequences for bad performances across the season. I mean, I know he's had his high points, but I think no one's been as consistently below par as John McGimp. Bold call, bold call. I, I, I... I would give him. I would give him another chance because he he played so badly last week. That he's probably due a good game on uh, Sunday. <laughs> um, but again, you know, if if he wants to be part of the, the Aston Villa midfield, and I've said this before, he has to be consistent. You can't be best player on the pitch, then the worst player on the pitch from one week to the next. So so much you can't be like that. You have to be. If you want to be a big time player, you need big time consistency. And McGinn just hasn't found that as of yet. But hopefully, he does. No one will be surprised to know that I would be keeping John McGinn in the team. Um, but yeah, I, I just think you lose so much with him out the side. But but I, I you know, there's going to come a point where, you know, if he doesn't start hitting the top level more consistently, um, where they're going to have to look at, at replacing him as they would with anyone. Um, no one lasts forever, do they? Um, and it, how long they stay in the team um, and at the club, I suppose, Um Always depends on on how how well they play. So, um, you know, he's 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 certainly got to got to improve in certain areas. So, guys, start with Dan. Predictions. 
Uh, I'm hoping it'll be more treat than trick, and uh, I'm hoping for a high-scoring Villa win, and I, that I doubt that's going to happen. But I still fancy us to win this one, if I'm honest. 2-1, scrappy, but I think we'll get it over the line. I'm no longer predicting ahead of you, Andy. Um, so <laughs> you tell me what game you think, it, what, what the score is, and I'll go afterwards. Well, I don't think you'd have taken one this one. I'm going to go 4-2 to Villa. Oh, well, yeah, definitely not going to say that. <laughs> Bold. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I've got to beat West Ham. One of my best mates is a. He listens to this podcast actually, and uh, sometimes at, at least, and uh, he's a West Ham fan, season ticket holder. So um, yeah, I, I, I don't like losing to West Ham at the best of times. So uh, <laughs> yeah, certainly uh, yeah, we're going to turn it round, and yeah, four two. Fair enough, four two. I'm going one one. I think uh, a solid battling performance, arrest the slide, get a point on the board. Um, and uh, and and build from there against Southampton, hopefully where we can get the win and just arrest the slump. 1-1, um, I think, would be a good result because this is a, make no mistake, this is a very, very good, well-drilled um, West Ham team who are further along in their development than, than Aston Villa are. You know, they've been in the Premier League for a long, old time. They've, they've you know, Perslow also talked about building that infrastructure. It, 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 took, it takes three years of Premier League football just to kind of, catch up in terms of the finances well we are only nine games into year three and people like West Ham are just you know we've got to catch them they are better than us right now West Ham are a better team than us right now so I would be happy with the point and I think given the context a a good point would be would be would be would be happy days for everyone yeah a win would be even better but I'm predicting one more I would take a point I would take a point I just thought I'd go a bit uh, a bit left field this this week um, but no, thanks for thanks for joining me, guys, um, and thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to um, get your Manscaped products, and head over to manscaped.com for twenty percent off, free worldwide shipping with our code LAMP L A M P. Um, and if you want to follow the the website, um, we are on all the social social channels: Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can head over to Under a Gaslit Lamp for all the latest articles from across the club. Um, if you're going to Villa Park on Sunday, enjoy the game. Let's hope it's a win. And we'll be back next week to uh, digest it all and um, and uh, go through it all again. So all the best. Take care. Stay safe and up the Villa.